Uh, it is not known yet if I'm going to be t- teaching the entire chapter of Psalm 18. Most likely I probably will, Lord willing. Or we may move somewhere else in the scriptures. But I'm, I think we're going to stay in Psalms for a while. But today is going to be verses 1 through 12 again. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a brief structural division of this entire chapter, looking forward into the future. Verses 1 through 3 will be Yahweh, the rock of our salvation. Verses 4 through 6 is affliction, or our affliction. Verses 7 through 15 is a theophany. I love the theophanies of the scriptures. And the Lord's coming to help. Verses 16 through 19 will be the Lord's deliverance. Verses 20 through 29, God's faithfulness to the faithful. Verses 30 through 36 will be the divine perfections. Verses 37 through 42 will be the king's victory over the enemies. Verses 43 through 45 is the glorious deliverance. And verses 46 through 50 again will be Yahweh, the rock of our salvation. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm that you have ordained for us to be able to read today in the year 2020. We thank you that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It does not change. You do not change. You are unmovable, unchanging. But Lord, we ask that your word would change us when necessary, that it would convict us if necessary. And we pray always that your word would equip us and edify and exhort us as one body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning with verses 1 through 6, reading the text. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation. And my high tower, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. Verse 4, the sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. David opens this psalm with a praise to the Lord, praising God that God answered his prayers. We as a church often have prayer requests and prayer lists, and we meet every Thursday night, and as you know, We had a specific prayer rest, my wife and I, for a recent tragedy in our lives. And God did answer that prayer last night, according to his will. And the will, God's will for my wife and I, in our family, is to praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord that he answered that prayer according to his will. Verse 1 says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. More often in the scriptures we hear of the wondrous love that God in Christ has for his people and his church, his beautiful bride. But here we see his people's love for him. 
The church's love for Christ. And this psalm is all about Christ. I love studying the Christology of the Old Testament scriptures. And this word, I will love thee, is the Hebrew word. We're going to be really digging into the Hebrew here. And I'm thankful that it's much more easier to pronounce today than usually the Greek is for this guy at least. But the Hebrew word, Raham, though it speaks of the now, it also speaks of the future tense. That we can praise the Lord now, that we love thy God now, but we ought to be praising him forever and loving him forever until we are glorified in heaven. This rakham can be translated as to fondo by implication, to love in the Hebrew, to love deeply, to have mercy, to be compassionate for, to have tender affections towards. Church, is that you? Are you just another Americanized believer that simply believes in an Americanized Jesus? Are we part of Christ's bride that have an affectionate, passionate, compassionate love for our God and that fears God and that reveres His Word? I know when I evangelize the lost and when you evangelize the lost, sometimes I will tell them that I love them sometimes and that I love and care for their soul, that I'm concerned for their soul. But that love for the lost is absolutely not even close to the love that we have for our church, that we have for Christ's universal church, and especially that we have for our little Mountain Reformed Baptist Church. It's a special love that we have for each other. Notable theologians like John Calvin translated this love as this, I will affectionately love thee. Victorious Bythner said, I will vehemently love thee. Johannes Piscator called this love, listen to this. I don't know what my wife would have said if I would have used these words when I proposed to her. But from my inmost bowels, I will love thee. Do we have that affectionate love for God from our inmost bowels? From the bottom of our heart and the fire of our belly. Do we have that love for God? Remember the scripture does say that God is a jealous God. We must love him more than any person, place, or thing in this world. As one author said, a unique verb expressive of love for God opens the psalm. Hebrew, and I love this Hebrew language in this psalm, Hebrew has various ways to express devotion and love for God, but usually the verb translated here as love, to have mercy, is used to affirm God's compassion for man. The verb implies the need of the one who receives the compassion and is associated with the mother's care for her children. Thus, David thus expresses his commitment to the Lord who is his source of strength, comfort, and sustenance. The phrase, I love you, communicates an intimacy of his relationship based on experience. End of quote. Next, take notice of the words of David used to describe the omnipotence of God. That God is all-powerful, his omnipotence. Verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. And my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. 
We should address God that way in our prayers. And admittedly, I fall short. But let's examine these Hebrew translations. The Hebrew word is amazing. It's a beautiful language, Hebrew. I studied Greek, but I never studied Hebrew formally, and I wish I would have. This word Lord in the Hebrew is the word Yehovah, and this word rock is the Hebrew word Selah, which means my stronghold. Yehovah is my Selah. The rock is also described in the Hebrew as a cliff or a high place of top security, a secure place that we can find refuge in. It also suggests a place high out of reach of enemies. When a soldier in the military or even in law enforcement, when a sniper does a reconnaissance, they will look for high ground, a place that is high security, a place where they can have cover and concealment and a tactical advantage over the enemy, a place that is so high that the enemy is now placed at a tactical disadvantage. And that is exactly what this Hebrew word is, that God is the rock, he is the, Jeho- he is the Jehovah, he is Selah, he is my stronghold, he is the one that I can run to that is higher than high. The Lord is my fortress, it says. The Hebrew word Matsud, Matsud. He is a castle or fortress or a strong place for our defense. A strong place for our defense. What if you're facing a physical enemy? What if you're facing a spiritual enemy? What if you're facing no matter what type of trials or tribulations or persecution or perhaps maybe, maybe death is knocking on your family's door? The Lord is our Matsud. He is a castle and a fortress, a strong place. Think of a castle. My wife and I, when we were in Europe, we got to actually visit old castles. Buildings there are much older than they are here. Obviously, we were America was discovered later. But there was a castle with a beautiful moat, a real moat with a real drawbridge where the alligators used to be in the moat. That was a fortress that was well protected by armed men, archers, and alligators. The only difference was that the alligators were no longer in the moat. That would obviously be bad for tourism if uh, somebody fell into the moat. But it says that my Lord is my deliverer, in the Hebrew, pallet, to safely carry away, to help escape, that when the enemy has you or is getting close to you, if you don't believe you're fully protected by the Lord, he will safely carry you away. He will safely protect you. He has done many times to us physically. There's times when you were close to a fatal accident on the freeway and you did not even know it. But God carried you away from an accident that you never knew even was coming your way. It says, the Lord, Jehovah, is my God. God in the Hebrew, El, El, which is an adjective describing God as the Almighty God. He's not just God, he is almighty God. He is the one true God. And this also speaks of his deity. The God, Head, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triunity of God. It speaks of his greatness, this Hebrew word. That he is the almighty and powerful one. 
This is the God that David cried out to. And it means nothing to go through God's word if we do not, if I do not compel you to not only understand the text, which I'm sure you already understand it before even teaching it here or preaching it here, but we also must apply it to our lives. Explanation and application. Apply it and demonstrate it by faith in our lives that this is the God that we serve. That this is the God that this church believes in. That this is the God in these scriptures. And then it says, The Lord is my strength. Surah. Surah. Described as a cliff. God described as a cliff. A sharp rock. A rock or boulder with sharpness that can protect you from thy enemy. A place of refuge. A place to hide in a sanctuary. Did you know that this building that we meet in It's an absolutely beautiful sanctuary. The sanctuary is a place where we can seek refuge from the lost world out there. And God is our refuge. He is our suah. He is our sanctuary. No matter where we are, He is our sanctuary. Salvation is more than an intellectual belief system. Salvation includes, it must include, a true salvific belief, pastuo, to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, means that we must be entrusted to him as Christ. Entrusted to Jesus as Lord of our life and as our Savior and as Christ alone for salvation. David said that the Lord is in whom I trust. On our currency we have in God we trust. I think you all probably agree that means nothing to most people is that dirty money passes through their hands and God we trust. Do they really trust in God? I've seen courtrooms within God we trust behind the bench. Do they really trust in God? But this in whom I trust, this phrase is the Hebrew word hasal, that it means that the one He is the one that we can flee to for protection, that we can confide in, that we can seek refuge in, that we can have hope in, that we can make our refuge, even knowing he already is our refuge. You don't need to make God your Lord. He's already Lord, and he's Lord of Lords. But do you trust him as Lord? Do we trust him as our refuge? Do we put our trust in him? As our God and in Christ for our salvation. The Lord is my buckler, Magain, Magain, my buckler, which means He is my shield, my protector, also described as a scaly hide of a crocodile. Here comes the crocodile again. Imagine that. The Hebrew word describing God as the scaly hide of a crocodile. The Lord is my horn. Keren, this is a defensive, protective horn on a large animal. I've seen videos out there. There was a video of, I forget what state, it might have been Texas, I can't remember, but it was on YouTube, and there was a bunch of motorists stuck on a mountain road, and there was a herd of large bison grazing the grass and slowly crossing the asphalt road. And some people got impatient, and some knucklehead decided that he would maneuver his car between the bison 
And one of the bisons, it looked like he was being gentle. He was actually bigger than the car. This is the horn right here. And the bison took his horn and stuck it, penetrated it right into the side of the vehicle. And then he gently lifted his head up and the vehicle flipped over on its side. This is the horn that God is for us, our defense mechanism, our protector. He is our flask in the Hebrew. He is the corner of the altar, a peak or a high mountain or a ray of light, this Hebrew language. This is beautiful love language, describing what God is, the majesty and glory of God. This horn is also a symbol of conquering strength, contrasting with a, uh, with a shield uh, of defensive strength. Because the word of God is actually offensive and defensive as well. And then David said, the Lord is my salvation. Salvation, yesha, yesha. He is my liberty, my deliverance, my prosperity or safety. He is my victory, my welfare or my rescue. He said, the Lord is my high tower, high tower, misgav. He is my high cliff or other inaccessible place. He's only accessible for God's elect. Only for Christ's bride will they have access to God through the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. He is my altitude. I know that Brother Nathan has planes. I've seen him before. He's a pilot. He flies. He has an altimeter on his dashboard to know what his altitude is. My dear friends, God is our high altitude. And the word of God is our altimeter. He is our altimeter, our altitude, our place of refuge. He is my defense. He is my high fortress. These were David's Hebrew love language describing our God. Do you know this God? Is this the God that you know? And if you know him but you don't think of him this way, with this awedness and reverence, we must repent. We must repent. Look at the letters of Jesus Christ in the seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 3. Out of five of those seven letters, there were strong rebukes to five churches. And he commanded them all to repent and come back to their first love in one of the letters. Repent before he removes our lampstand. If this is the God that we know, is this the way that you feel about our God? And about his son and about his Holy Spirit and about his word. Moving forward to verse three, he said, David said, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. David displayed his confidence in the Lord's ability to deliver. Therefore, it was praiseworthy. God is praiseworthy, worthy to be praised. When David called upon the Lord in prayer, he tasted the sweetness of this deliverance. Everybody sitting in this in the sanctuary that is saved, you tasted the sweetness of the deliverance of the wrath of God, the deliverance of condemnation in hell, the deliverance of having a heart of stone that was turned into a heart of flesh. 
We as a Christian people must also trust in our Lord, our God, and that he will deliver us as he wills, according to his will and not ours. W.S. Plummer said this, Whoso comes to God as he should will not call in vain. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The right kind of prayer is the most potent instrumentality known on earth. Every approach to God should be with adoring views and with thanksgiving. No enemy, no number of enemies can resist Jehovah. If God be for us, who can be against us? Close quote. Church, our God delivers. Our God saves. Our God can deliver us from physical foes. And our God can deliver us from spiritual enemies as well. Moving on to verses 4 through 6 is affliction. Affliction. Next, David recalls the intensity of his anguish. As if ropes were wrapped around him. As if the sorrows or the cords of death were consuming him. In verse 4, he says, The sorrows or cords of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. He prayed and pled to God that the sorrows or the pains of death, that they were so intense and so overwhelming that they surrounded him, and he was being entrapped by the cords or snares of death. God help me, God help me, God help me, as he cried out to the Lord. These threats against David were not isolated incidents. They came like a winter flood of rushing water, floods of ungodly men, wicked men. These ungodly men in the Hebrew, these ungodly men in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word Belial. And this is not nice, but this is the Hebrew language. This is what it means. They were worthless men, good for nothing, wicked, evil, naughty men. Today we would call them our worst enemy. David, of all people, confessed to the Lord. David would confess, I'm afraid. David confessed, I'm afraid, God. I'm scared. There's nothing wrong with a man praying out to God that he's scared. I may not admit it to my wife. But Lord, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I need your help. He was terrified of these evil men that were after him. He must have felt that he could not escape because he was trapped by the snares or the cords or the net of death that was upon him. Death was surrounding him. Death was knocking on his door. Calvin said this, David now begins to recount the undoubted and illustrious proofs by which he had experienced that the hand of God is sufficiently strong and powerful to repel all the dangers and calamities with which he may be assailed. And we need not wonder that those things which might have been described more simply and in an adorned style are clothed in poetical forms of expression and set forth with all the elegancies and ornaments of language. End of quote. In verse 5, he said, The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. The NASB, which most of us are on here in this church, except for I'm using King James with Psalms, but the NSB reads, The cords of Sheol surrounded me. Surrounded me. The ESV reads, The cords of Sheol entangled me. Whether David or we uh, were compassed, surrounded, or entangled by the sorrows of hell, that's 
Not a good place to be. It's not a good place to be. There are people in this congregation that have been close to death. But God delivered them according to his will. He allowed you to live for the glory of God. I was recently talking to a Christian about the doctrine of limited atonement. That's one of the five points of Calvinism that I obviously embrace. Uh, But this one here, she struggled with the thoughts that some people never had a chance. They never had a chance. And they will soon experience the sorrows of hell. The best way to remove yourself from guilt or the anguish of your family, your loved ones or your friends that might, that will die and that will perish in hell, to remove that guilt is to share the glorious gospel with them. If you shared the law and the gospel with them, their blood is not on your hands. And we must share the whole counsel of the word of God, which means the good, the bad, the ugly, the, both the goodness and severity of God. The wrath of God, that he hates sin, but also the love and grace of God, that we can be saved through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I love what Apostle Paul said in his dying death declaration. One of the last words he ever said. I do not have the blood of innocent men upon my hands, because I have not shunned to teach the whole counsel of the word of God. He knew when he would lie his head on that pillow and give his last breath. Paul knew that the blood was not on his hands because he did the will of God and he shared the gospel. And the rest is up to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. David too was consumed by the sorrows of the thoughts of hell. In verse 6 he said this, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Describing God as having ears. Paganism seemed to triumph, but in his distress, David turns to the Lord our God. After his prayer, he betrays the Lord's coming with great power and glory, with the intent to establish God's order and his justice and to thereby to redeem his servant. David remembered to pray to the Lord in his distress, as we all should. And we ought not only pray in distress on the bad days, we must always pray and give thanks on the good days. Prepare for the bad days. Prepare ahead for the bad days. Next is verses 7 through 12, a theophany, a theophany, and the Lord's coming to help. From this point on, things get more intense. Sounds like we're reading some parts of the the book of Revelation here. It gets more intense and we see how Almighty God responds to David's prayer of anguish. As one scholar said, and I quote, When you come to verses 7 through 19, it sounds as if a war had broken out. And that is exactly what happened at the resurrection of Christ. The battle was between God and the hosts of hell. Satan and all his demons encamped at the tomb outside Jerusalem, determined that the Lord Jesus Christ would never rise again. Their success in having the Son of God crucified would be completely nullified if he were to rise from the grave. So they massed themselves at the sealed tomb of the Savior. Close quote. And now verses 7 through 12. 
Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up smoke out of his nostrils. Smoke went out of God's nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Verse 9. He bowed the heavens also and came down. And darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. God's reaction in his heavenly glory is couched in the language of a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God, a visible appearance of God. And they're all throughout the scriptures. In verse 7 he said, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. God is concerned with the distress of his children. If you're here today and you're one of his, he's concerned when you're in distress. And he's pleading you in this, through the scriptures to cry out to him and trust in him. God reacted here by shaking the planet earth with, with an earthquake. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, that is God speaking to us. God making himself known, a manifestation of his covenant promise. Every time we experience an earthquake, that is God speaking to us. That is God. Would it be the love of God or the anger of God? It is God. Verse 8 says, There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. The smoke in the Hebrew is tantamount to burning the burning of a city. Tantamount to the burning of a city. Heralding a foe or the breath of a crocodile. Here's the crocodile again. More specifically, it is tantamount to God's righteous anger, God's righteous indignation. The smoke of the fire represents his readiness to avenge his enemies. God is not quick to pull the trigger, so to speak. His mercy triumphs over his judgment, but sometimes he does move swiftly against the enemy. Thank God he didn't move too swiftly against us when we were unregenerate children of wrath, sons of perdition, enemies of Christ, at enmity with God. God spoke and breathed out creation and life into existence, the Bible says. He breathed and he spoke creation into existence. But my friends, he can also breathe out his wrath. Church, Theophanies matter. Theophanies matter. Exodus 19, 16 through 18 says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a trumpet heated exceedingly loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly.
The whole mount quaked greatly. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10 says this. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the hand desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Verse 9, it says that he bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. Darkness was under God's feet. Though the threats that David faced were horrific, God the Avenger has now become a much bigger threat to David's enemies. And God to us can also become a bigger threat to our enemies, including the enemy called death. As another said, he fought within the dense vapors as a warrior in clouds of smoke and dust and found out the hearts of his enemies with the sharp falchion of his vengeance. The darkness mentioned here, church, is no problem to God because God is light. And wherever God is, darkness cannot exist. Be in a light, a dark room, pitch black, light a match, the light overcomes the darkness. The darkness will not overcome the light. I'll fast forward to 1 John. Uh, as Brother Mike recently read 1 John on our Thursday night prayer meeting. But 1 John, to see what, uh, what's happening here, what happens in the beginning. Fast forward into John 1.5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Verse 10. And God's light never goes out. Almost everything we have nowadays is rechargeable. We need a recharge. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Word. We need conviction, correction, exhortation, training, instruction in righteousness. But God's light never goes out. Verse 10. And he rode upon a cherub. God rides upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. This is a metaphoric portrait of the wrath of God, my friends. The wrath of God in the clouds. As if he was breathing out smoke from his nostrils to afflict men by the dreadful weight of his power. By the dreadful weight of his power and his glory. It says in the scriptures that God is angry with the wicked every day. And I know that God is angry when the world goes against his church. Christ died for his church. God's love is absolutely amazing for his beautiful bride. And he has a righteous anger for those that would go against the church. The clouds are his chariot and the wind makes up the wings with, as he flies downward on a rescue mission. Verse 11 says this, He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. The darkness of the clouds heightens the effect of the brightness and glory of God. Still today, still today, my friends, God 
decrees and ordains man-made and God-made disasters. And we may never understand why, but he does. And I believe that as the ender of the end times come closely, my personal opinion, eschatologically, is I truly believe that things will get worse in America. I truly believe that. I could be wrong. But God does decree man-made disasters as well as God-made disasters. In one of my trips to Louisiana, many uh, my trips to Louisiana, I, I don't have any ex- experience with storms. We just have experience with earthquakes. And man, there was a storm coming through Texas. I was almost into Louisiana. Big tornado. I felt like that guy on TV, the storm chaser. But I was a storm runner. I hit the pedal of the metal. I was running from that storm. And I, I, I didn't know if it was going to catch me or what. But my dear friends... God sweeps storms through lands. The one in New Orleans that happened many years ago, I truly believe that was a judgment of God upon New Orleans, Katrina. I truly believe that. I could be wrong. But we know that God, for a fact, according to the scriptures and according to our confession, that God decrees all things, though he's not the author of sin, he decrees all of these things to happen. We know that's a fact. But I truly believe it was the judgment of God upon that community. When Katrina hit Louisiana. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Especially when we would misuse his rainbow and put it on a flag. To celebrate sin. In a mockery and blasphemy against God. God is angry with the wicked every day. But church. If you're saved. Well obviously if you're saved. I, I could only call you a church if you are saved. But everybody sitting in this congregation, if you're born again, you will not experience the wrath of God. You will experience the love of grace of God. That's good news. That's why we as a church must go out into the streets and share the glorious gospel with the lost. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. At least by leaving a track with somebody. And if God wills to save them through the, by responding to that gospel, they will. And the most vile, wicked, wretched man that I once was can belong to our family of God. And then we can call them our brother or our sister and love them just like we love each other. Ezekiel 1.4 says, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came about the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof is the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. God might use a storm to judge an entire land, or God might even use a storm to usher in a storm simply to protect one family inside a housing track. God works in mysterious ways. We rarely know the whys of why God does things. But in trust, when we experience tragedies in our life, or unexpected death of a family member, we should never ask God why. But we should ask God how. How can I glorify you through this? What shall I do, Lord? Verse 12 that the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. This is intense. As God, a divine warrior, moves forward, moves closer to his enemies, he announces his coming with hailstones, bolts of lightning, and thunder. He then shoots forth his arrows 
in the form of lightning, conquering, or getting rid of his enemies. This is a graphic imagery here. No opposition can withstand God's response. He is the glorious, victorious, conquering king over heaven, earth, and the sea. Here we can clearly see the sovereignty and supremacy of God in Christ. Perhaps soon I might do an exposition of this next cross-reference verse, or actually I should call it, it's actually a chapter, this next cross-reference chapter. But Psalm 29 says this, and listen to this, my friends. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord of God in strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve and discovereth the forests. And in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this sermon that you have given me. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher and the giver of the gift of teaching. We give you 100% thanks, praise, and glory for it. We thank you, Christ, for making yourself known in this chapter of Psalm 18. We look forward to studying more about you, Christ, here in Psalm 18. We ask that this church would be edified. We pray that you will exhort us, Lord. Pray that you would exhort us and encourage us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.